All right. Welcome back to another episode of Are You a Robot? Let's jump right into it with Mark and get a quick bio. Sure. Uh, my name is Mark Pockwitz. I'm an attorney and a director of the Legal Innovation Center at Ulster University in Belfast, United Kingdom. My background is in federal legislative policy in the United States, mostly around technology and privacy. So in my academic life and my research, I touch on all areas of law that have any touch and concern regarding technology. So in case you have not listened to us before, I'm just going to give you a little update on what we are doing here at Are You a Robot? This is a series where we aim to tackle some of the greatest challenges that stem from AI and related technologies. And the way that we're doing that is by gathering the best and the brightest minds in their respective fields to come on here and talk with me about what they're doing, how they see the state of affairs, if there's anything we need to look out for, if there's any blind spots that we potentially need to be looking at more in depth, and if there are best practices that we can take away from the conversation as a community and as a broader AI ethics community, as a broader AI community, those who are working in AI and machine learning, what can we take away from this and start to bring with us when we are working in the craft, working on the craft? So... I will mention that the conversation does not finish here. If you would like, join our Slack community. You can find a link to that down below in the comments or in the description. And that is an amazing place where you can come introduce yourself. Let us know what you're working on. Let us know if there's anything that you feel particularly passionate about. And we'll have an incredible discussion about what it is you are doing. Last but not least, I'm going to give a big shout out to our sponsor this season. It's a little different. We've got For Humanity sponsoring us. If you don't know what they're doing, they're an organization that focuses on developing an infrastructure of trust in AI through independent third-party audits. It's incredible what is going on with For Humanity. You can find all the links to what they are doing down below in the description. And without further ado, let's talk with Mark. Are you a robot? Mark, it is a pleasure to have you on here. And I can already tell this is going to be an excellent conversation. We just hit record, but before we started talking on the record. We had a nice little combo about guitars that I have a few behind me. That's not what we're here to talk about today, though. We're really going to dive into AI and legal aspects of it. And I think it would be a nice background for people listening to get to know more about you and how you came to be where you're at. I'm sure. Well, uh, so thank you very much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. And for international listeners, um, even though I'm a lawyer in the United States, we have a different educational system. So you don't study law at the undergraduate level, you study law as a professional graduate degree. So I started off studying English literature because I'd always been, always been interested in language and how people express themselves. And I felt that being able to write well and persuasively and structure clear and cogent arguments would be helpful in any career. And I did a few other things before finally becoming a lawyer. I worked for a foundation doing neuropsychiatric research in South America. I worked in consulting. I worked for a software company. And eventually found my way down to Washington, D.C., where I started working for an attorney named Bruce Fine, who had been an associate deputy attorney general. He'd been a general counsel for the Federal Communications Commission. 
He had worked on the impeachments of Richard Nixon and Bill Clinton, who would go on to work on other impeachments down the road. Um, but we had some really interesting clients and some really interesting issues that we tackled in the realms of international law. And we started to have a lot of questions around privacy issues with respect to technology. This was still during President Obama's first term. This was before the Snowden revelations. But more and more people were growing concerned about the legal issues involved with the use of technology. So what could government, for instance, look at with respect to emails or communications? As social media was exploding, questions emerged around free speech, um, defamation, and copyrighted content. So with all of these things swirling around, a lot of members of Congress were consulting with Bruce to get his take on this as a well-established constitutional attorney. Well, because he didn't know the technology side as well, he and I would have hours and hours and hours of conversations where I would help translate the technology into terms that he as a constitutional lawyer could understand. And then he would teach me sort of the legal and constitutional implications from a United States perspective on these technologies. So it got to a point where a lot of people mistook me for a lawyer because I had a very deep knowledge base and a very narrow set of issues. And at that point, I decided to become one. So that's sort of how I got to where I am with respect to law and technology. Incredible. That's so cool to hear. So you fell right into it. Absolutely. It was not deliberate. You know, people often talk about your career path. Mm. And I'd found that as somebody with communication skills, I'd always been sort of an intermediary layer between technology and people. Whether it was helping my parents set up a printer, you know, or uh, in the bit of research space, uh, helping to translate the technology to the doctors who were using it or to the researchers who were using it in consulting, being the bridge between the technical people within the firm and our clients, um, and then later in Washington, helping to translate uh, niche technical issues into legal terms. Hmm. So let's talk about how privacy has changed in legal terms over time. You mentioned when you got into this, it was before the Snowden revelation and it was before before these really like social media blew up, I imagine. So how has that affected the privacy that we look at in, as far as legally and then also within the greater context of society? Sure. Well, we can even go back a little bit further than that. Um, one of the earliest modern examinations of privacy was in 1890 when Samuel um, Warren and Louis Brandeis wrote an article in the fourth edition of the Harvard Law Review called The Right to Privacy. And in it, they explore how changes in technology have affected privacy. How, if you look historically, um, if somebody were to peer into your home, you know, that would be uh, a trespass on your property, not necessarily an invasion of your privacy. That's not how the law would have looked at that sort of a thing. And so as you saw recording technology increase in the 19th century, as photography technology increased, there were more ways that people's privacy can be invaded. So now the person peering into your home could take a picture. And then all of a sudden, what they show is no longer hearsay, but there's some sort of evidence of what they claim to have seen. So as we see this development where we begin to think more and more about the way that things about us can be fixed to some kind of medium, we begin to have greater concerns around these issues of privacy. So moving to the idea of social media and internet search and internet of things devices, there is an incredible amount of um, sort of data that is generated by the things we do in life. Walking around your cell phone pings off of a wide range of towers. So those interactions are recorded. 
the apps that you use record interactions. I mean, sometimes even keyboards can record the keystrokes that you make on a device, especially if your keyboard synchronizes your experience across devices. Um, the websites we visit, the businesses where we use our credit cards, um, sometimes uh, Bluetooth devices will interact with Bluetooth sensors and stores to track where you go throughout stores. So it always reminds me of when people learn to drive or to cross the road. You know, you in the United States look left and then you look right and you have an instinct as to where the threat comes from. But when it comes to technology, a lot of this is so new to us, we don't have a good sense of where these dangers are, where these threats are. So when it comes to the amount of information that we willingly share, we think, oh, well, if I'm posting this, I'm aware that people could read it. But there's so many other things that um, are revealed about you through the devices you use, through where you are when you access them. So for instance, if you use a standard computer, when I say a standard computer, one that a lot of people have, a MacBook, for instance, mm -hmm. you know, that's a pretty common device. So perhaps that uniqueness of that particular device might not be as telling. But if you're somebody who's built your own computer, for instance, you know, there's certain hardware information on that device that the specific combinations of hardware that can be unique to you or at least narrow down the field. If you're somebody who uses multiple displays or a 4K screen when they're not as common, having a device operating at that resolution could also be something that identifies you as well. So there are so many things about how we interact with the world that reveal information about ourselves or can be traced to us specifically that I think a lot of people don't really understand or are, are even aware of. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I'm wondering how much of the change now that we're seeing within privacy and all of this has been impacted by AI and machine learning. Has that had an impact now on how we're looking at privacy? Like you talk about, there's so much data out there, but it's not feasible for people to go and sift through it. So I imagine we have to deploy some kind of machine learning on that, or am I mistaken there? So you raise a good point with respect to the application of machine learning to sift through or identify all this data. And there's a distinction I probably should have made earlier, which is in a lot of the policy discussions on privacy, we tend to make a distinction, or at least we used to make a distinction, between privacy from government and privacy from corporations. So when I say that, uh, it's to say when you use a popular email service, for instance, the terms of use, you agree to allow them to do all of these things. And we're not as concerned about that because so far popular internet services can't put us in jail. But when it comes to the information that government can access, a lot of us are more concerned. So on the one hand, while I am concerned about a private company sifting through my online behavior to try to identify patterns, um, spending habits, products I might be interested, political views I might have, while I do find that concerning, I would be more concerned if government were doing the same thing to try to identify whether or not they thought I might be some kind of risk according to some sort of criteria that they assign. So when we look at the way that data is analyzed, as we all know with machine learning algorithms, depending on the machine learning strategy, these things can be trained. So what that means is that the researchers, the people developing them, show them the type of data and say, this is the kind of data we want you to examine. So these type of supervised or semi-supervised algorithms are very good at classifying things, predicting things. Now there are other types of algorithms that sort of just chew through data to try to find correlations. And sometimes these correlations are valuable, sometimes they aren't. But at the end of the day, these technologies are able to, in the aggregate or individually, infer and deduct, uh, 
deduce a great amount of information about us. So there are stories where um, there was one where uh, I'm not going to say the name of the retailer, <laughs> but it started a big box retailer in the United States started to advertise to a father information about uh, prenatal care and information about babies. They're trying to sell diapers and lotions and things like that. And he was furious because I think that he, he and his wife had divorced, whatever it was, the only woman uh, of, uh, in the house was his 16-year-old daughter. And so he was livid that this company was trying to imply that his daughter was pregnant. So he went to the store and yelled at the manager. And then a few weeks later, found out that his daughter was in fact pregnant. So what happened was that this big box retailer was able to look at her spending patterns oh, wow. in the shop and the things that she purchased. And their algorithm said, oh, a lot of women, um, when they're pregnant, begin to do this. And so they said certain... You know, they, they buy more maybe organic products or lotions that have fewer additives. And so using an algorithm, they deduced it. Um, there was another instance where a guy got a mailer and his wife had died in a car crash. And they had improperly done the mail merge. So uh, his address had his name. And then uh, instead of his street, it said wife died in car crash. And then it had his street address. So there are these data sets that companies are able to put together um, and be able to sometimes identify using traditional approaches or machine learning approaches that can tell us a great deal of information about ourselves, some of which we know, some of which we don't know, some of which we don't want to be public. Yeah. Yeah, that last part, key, I think, is what we don't want to be public or we prefer to keep to ourselves. So I've heard, and maybe you know about this and maybe you've heard about it, but there's like preemptive policing going on right now. Do you know much mm -hmm. about that with the machine learning or... Can you explain to me about that? I've only read uh, an article on it, and I don't think I got a really good idea of what's going on, but I figure you might be the right person to ask. Well, so I'll say off the top that this is not my specific area of expertise. Um, I have uh, There are plenty of people out there who spend a lot of time looking at this who are much more knowledgeable than I, so I apologize in advance if I butcher the details or butcher the specifics. But in broad strokes, there are programs uh, when I say programs, I don't mean software applications, but government programs, municipal programs, um, where you have scientists, computer scientists, data people analyzing patterns of crimes in various cities, various places, various neighborhoods. So by analyzing historic crime data, they are then able to come up with uh, sort of police patrol schemes and routes that they think are best able to deal with crime in certain geographical areas. Mm. Um, and there's sort of a medley of approaches that this can be used. So sometimes it's used for patrol, sometimes it's used for timing, but sometimes the distribution of police force and patrols throughout particular areas can be um, kind of predicted, not predicted, but sort of helping designed by an algorithm that uses historic data, which isn't always properly scrubbed for the types of biases that we get concerned about in this type of mm. information. We've also seen the use of this type of data and this type of programs and systems for things like um, parole or things like bail, where essentially you have machine learning algorithms trained on historic data that hasn't necessarily been properly analyzed and properly cleaned. And what that means is that if you have a history in a particular area of policing in certain communities um, and higher enforcement of rules in certain marginalized areas. So for instance, in New York City, um, if you look at the neighborhoods where citations are given to cyclists for bicycling on the sidewalk, they tend to be a higher instance of issuance of citations for cycling on the sidewalk 
in communities of color. So if we were to take an algorithm uh, that looks at uh, a medley of issues in the area, it looks at a range of data points, and that tends to be one of them, it could lead to the algorithm having a uh, sort of reinforcing what could be a disparate impact in policing policy and strategy. Hmm. So there was a researcher, and I'm, I'm, I, I will rem- look up the name of the researcher, who I can't recall and put it in the notes, I guess, yeah. who looked at one of these systems. And what he found was that um, his team looked at these systems and found in one of them that um, when they put the same details and case patterns on Mechanical Turk, an online system used to do crowdsourced of information or other types of projects, that the general public actually performed the same way the algorithm did, more or less, with respect to what it predicted. And when they began to play with the data and play with the information, what they ended up finding was that the system most heavily relied on two different factors, two or three different factors out of 11 to do this Mm -hmm. prediction. And all of these ended up being proxies for race. Mm -hmm. So even though they might have 11 data points on each individual case, the system most specifically looked at age. This had to do with um, whether somebody was going to be a recidivist, if someone was going to be a repeat offender. It looked at age, I think zip code, I believe, and prior criminal history. Hmm. And it turned out that age was related. So if somebody's in their 70s, are they really going to be another offender? It's not as likely as if they're in their teens or in their 20s. Um, But um, prior criminal history and zip codes turned out to be proxies for race in the study. So when it comes to predictive policing, when it comes to the use of these algorithms, I'm not saying that they're inherently good or inherently bad. They just are. But, you know, the data scientists speak about garbage in, garbage out. So unless you properly understand what biases might already exist in your data, your algorithms can serve to perpetuate these existing biases. Hmm. So where's an area that you feel legal innovation is catching up to the needs that have been created by AI? <clears throat> so as we saw with the general data protection regulation in the EU, some jurisdictions are proactively, let me rephrase that, reactively addressing issues more quickly than others. We've recently seen a draft proposal on AI regulation in the European Union, which has some flaws in it. I, you know, we can maybe set up another time to talk or I can go into greater detail. And I'm sure there are plenty of people who know more about it than I. But we are beginning to see a greater recognition of some of the risks of the use of artificial intelligence in law and legal practice. Hmm. And I will say that one of the early adopters uh, in the legal space of machine learning technology were firms involved in the commercial practice of law, or rather the um, enterprise legal computing environment. So when you look at something like discovery, which is the process by which documents are shared and analyzed in the case of litigation, you now have millions of documents sometimes being used in part, as part of litigation. And in the old days, you would have you know, discovery rooms where people would have you know, reams and reams and reams of paper, you know, tens of thousands of pages where they would, young lawyers and paralegals would have to go through and read and try to find information that was... I remember when I was working for Bruce, we had a case where we were arguing in motion practice over what the search terms should be. Semantic search wasn't really as much of a thing then, so we needed to come up with the Boolean operators that we would use in order for purposes of turning over emails as part of a discovery process. Now a lot of that looks at machine learning. So the use of natural language processing and machine learning 
in electronic discovery has been around in law much longer than other areas. We see machine learning tools being used in legal drafting, um, which is kind of exciting now. Uh, we see big um, database companies and enterprise legal firms trying to apply machine learning more or less to the, the natural language part. And there are some researchers who argue that natural language processing doesn't work for legal because legal is kind of a different language. Yeah. And as a consequence, they look to um, legal language processing. And I know that you've had other folks on the show talking about NLP and law, so I'm not going to get into all of that. Um, other areas where we begin to see um, sort of people thinking about how we're going to address these issues with um, machine learning, artificial intelligence, and autonomous systems, for instance, are autonomous vehicles. Hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so when it comes to autonomous vehicles, one of the concerns that a lot of people have is how they will behave. And when you talk about ethics, when you talk about morals, we think of the trolley problem. If an autonomous vehicle is going to be in a collision, how do we determine which pedestrian it should hit in this hypothetical scenario that I've generated, mm. right? Is it, is it the infant in the stroller or is it the grandparent pushing the infant in the stroller? Mm. And this isn't a decision that we would like to have to make but it seems to me that lawmakers are going to eventually need to come up with parameters for how these algorithms should operate in those circumstances. You certainly would want a school bus full of children to behave differently than a school bus that's empty. You'd want it to be more cautious if it's full of kids. Um, you know, do we prioritize the life of a driver of an autonomous vehicle or the lives of the people in the vehicle that it might uh, hit. You know, how do we make those decisions? And if I were a software developer, or if I were the general counsel for a firm that dealt in this space, I would want us to make those decisions. I would want lawmakers to say, if you want to have an autonomous vehicle operate in Belfast, if you want this autonomous vehicle to operate in Detroit, in New York, in London, here are the rules of the road. Here's how we want it to make decisions. So to go back to your question, which is um, what areas of law and policy are catching up with artificial intelligence and machine learning, it's really difficult to say. Uh, we saw something called NDAS, I believe, was how the acronym was pronounced, NDAS in the UK, where they were trying to do something similar to what we've seen with COMPASS, which is a predictive, uh, predictive policing um, system with recidivism mm -hmm. and kind of a lot of the things that we've discussed momentarily. And it was shut down because they couldn't really address the concerns a lot of people raised from an ethical consideration, an ethical standpoint. So it's, it's hard to say. I think that we're going to have some jurisdictions where these technologies go wild and other jurisdictions that are very hesitant, and I can only hope that it will equalize. So let's zoom into autonomous vehicles for a moment because that's a really interesting one, right? The challenges that it presents and looking at it from the legal perspective, it's almost like there's this fusion of product liability meets software liability and you have to be have your disclaimers for both how can we reconcile or how should that be reconciled between those two or fused together that's a great observation and it's something that i've been thinking about and, and, and working on for a while so i'm glad that we, we, we hit on this um it, it's a challenge right because if you think about it your phone um most of us have smartphones now, if it bricks because of a software issue, we have no recourse until an update is pushed out because we agreed to hold these companies harmless. They give us the software as is, blah, 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 blah. But if it's a hardware issue, 
we're in this product's liability space under traditional warranties. And we have different sets of laws that deal with these things. The law of software licensure is the law of contract. And these are what we in legal terms call the contract of adhesion. Uh, we as individual users don't have any bargaining power. I can't call up any of these huge software companies and say, actually, I'd like to negotiate these terms. And in fact, in the United States, the uh, case law sort of says that these companies don't even have to pick up the phone when I do that or even respond to me. There's a Supreme Court case called Carnival Cruise Line v. Shoot. I can't remember when it was. It was the 80s or the 90s. And it involved a cruise ticket. A cruise line. I haven't read this since law school, so it's been quite some time, but it involved a, a cruise line. And on the ticket, it said, you know, if you have an issue and want to sue us, you must sue us in this particular jurisdiction, right? I think it was the state of Florida. And the shoots had been, you know, from Washington State or somewhere else in the United States, opposite side of the country. Something happened. He got injured. He wanted to sue the company, tried to sue in his local court. Um, but the Carnival Cruise Line said, no, when you bought this ticket, you know, it said, um, you must sue us here. And there were some issues with respect to whether or not they could bring the claim because of timing, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, the court found, well, look, it is a, a business cost if you have to litigate in every jurisdiction where one of your customers might come from. So presumably the customers themselves benefit from having these forum selection clauses, right? So the uh, company can keep costs down and those savings are passed on to the consumer. So when it comes to a lot of these click wrap agreements, um, the courts have more or less found the same sort of thing, that a lot of these clauses allow the companies to keep costs low. And so when it comes now to the idea of autonomous vehicles, you know, are we going to be able to negotiate with these companies because we don't like the terms under which they offer the software? Now, the other thing I'll add is if you look at the way that a phone comes with a built-in operating, not the built-in operating system, but the operating system tied to the hardware, Typically, we avoid the warranty if we mess with that at all. So when you look at big pieces of hardware that are tied specifically to software, I don't think anybody's going to buy an autonomous vehicle, you know, root the autonomous vehicle and put their own you know, operating system, they pull off GitHub onto it. You know, that's just not how that's going to work. And so if we're going to buy these autonomous vehicles or ride in these autonomous vehicles, we don't really have a choice. And we're going to have to accept whatever terms these companies offer. Now, but think about it. How many times have you refused to update a device immediately or update an app immediately. It's incredibly inconvenient. You launch an app, uh, you yeah. need to do something. It says, oh, sorry, there's an update. You say, oh, I'll do it later. Oh, I'll do it yeah. later. I know people who you look on their phone has a hundred things they need to update. They don't go around to it. Well, but what if there's an issue with your autonomous vehicle? What if, what if um, there's some, <clears throat> some sort of issue that has caused a collision in another jurisdiction? And they say, oh, there's a flaw with an algorithm. We need to fix this. So you're about to hop into your uh, AV and you flip it on. It says, oh, there's an update. And you say, oh, no, I can't. I have a doctor's appointment. I can't update this now. I need to get to the doctor's office right away. And then you say, no, update later. And then all of a sudden you're involved in the same kind of collision that the update would have fixed. Mm -hmm. You know, at, at what point in time is the person liable for not doing an update? And if the answer is, well, we don't even want to get there. So these vehicles will update themselves automatically no matter what you do. Is anyone going to buy them if I might have to sit there for an hour while this thing updates and I have no control over when it actually does that? So there are these, going to be these weird points where liability shifts from the company, if we can even hold them liable under the terms of their agreements, to the user for not updating it in a timely fashion. Further, some jurisdictions allow an almost limitless right to contract like the United States, whereas in other jurisdictions there are certain rights 
that people can't sign away. So when you look at the world of copyright, for instance, moral rights tend to be much stronger in Europe than they are in the United States. Now, moral rights often entail the right to be identified as the author of a work, but there are certain unalienable rights in different places in Europe that can prevent people from altering the work down the road or using it in ways that the author doesn't approve. There's a famous case called um, Turner v. Houston, in which um, John Houston's heirs sued Turner Broadcasting because they wanted to colorize the asphalt jungle. And Angelica Houston and others argued that had their father wanted to make a noir film in color, he would have, and that black and white was a hallmark of the noir genre. So to colorize it was destructive. Now, they tried to sue in the States. It didn't really work as well. They brought it in France, and I believe there was an injunction in some sort of fine that they had paid as some arts fund or whatever it was. So moral rights are much stronger in these other places, and it seems to me that the countries in which the IP moral rights regimes are stronger are not going to be as favorable towards autonomous vehicle firms who might want people to say, you use these at your own risk, and we are held harmless no matter what happens with the software. Hmm. And it's really interesting to think about inside of the U.S. as we look at all the different states and how some states are really gung-ho about getting autonomous vehicles on the road and testing it. And then you have other states that don't want anything to do with it or that they just don't have it yet. And so how this will play out within the states themselves, I think, is something also pretty fascinating to think about. Oh, it's really going to be very odd um, no matter how it goes down in the U.S. Now, those, I know you have a large international audience, so I'll do a quick brief lesson in sort of how the U.S. works with respect to the difference between the federal and the state governments. But in broad strokes, under the Constitution of the United States, a lot of rights are reserved by the state governments, um, often the health, safety, welfare, and depending on how you look at it, the morality of the populations. So with respect to COVID-19, one of the reasons that the states, each state had a different policy has to do with these powers left to the states under the Constitution. Now, the federal government has very broad authority to intervene in some issues that we may think of as more states' issues under something called the Interstate Commerce Clause. So because Congress can regulate interstate commerce, they can wield that um, cudgel in a very broad manner to tackle all kinds of things that most of us would say, scratch our head and say, how does that relate to interstate commerce? Um, so if you'll indulge me a brief constitutional law lesson, there's a 1942 Supreme Court case called Wickard v. Filburn, in which a fellow who was a farmer took some farm subsidy that said you can only grow X number of acres of wheat. Well, he grew additional wheat beyond what the limit was. But he didn't sell that wheat. He actually saved it for himself. He ground it into flour that his wife used to bake bread, and he used it for animal feed. And when the federal government found out about this, um, they got upset, and it went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, and they looked at this, and they said, well, wait a minute. Even though he only grew 16 acres of wheat for personal use, um, in the aggregate, that could have an effect on interstate commerce, because now you're not buying wheat, for instance. Um, that, that you would have had to buy. So that sort of the, the same argument, oh, well, if everybody else does it kind of thing. So in 1942, the Supreme Court of the United States found that they could regulate even the private growth of wheat um, because it could have a t an effect on interstate commerce. And since then, the federal government of the United States has used this interstate commerce 
power broadly to regulate all kinds of things. There was a Supreme Court case, I think it was 2005, called Gonzalez v. Raich, where a, a woman, I think it was in Washington State, grew some marijuana plants, um, which was still illegal federally, technically, in the United States, even now. Back then, certainly was something that the government went after. So even though her state kind of allowed this for medicinal use or whatever the facts pattern was, the federal government argued that, that her having these two marijuana plants could affect the illicit interstate commerce of marijuana. So even though they said it's an illegal market, it still affects interstate commerce. That's how they can use their federal authority to get involved in the case. So um, when it comes to the idea of autonomous vehicles and when they operate, it would be very easy for the federal government to say, because autonomous vehicles have the option of traveling in interstate commerce, we therefore are going to have the federal you know, regulation on, on, on autonomous vehicles. Now, the other thing I'll quickly say to this is that when it comes to federal regulations in the United States, they often operate as a floor, not a ceiling. So mm. California, for instance, has a stricter, more stringent environmental standard for automobiles than the other states do. And that's perfectly permissible. Um, California could not have a standard that's lower than the federal standard, but they're able to have one that's higher than the federal standard. Mm. So even if we have some, some legislation in the United States that is a, a floor for the basic safety or requirements around autonomous vehicles, individual states can have a higher standard. Well, I'm not going to lie. I was very shocked in your ability to make a coherent argument <laughs> with weed and then bring it back around to autonomous vehicles. Uh, so congratulations on that one. That is pretty incredible. <laughs> <laughs> Now, speaking of, so there's a lot of things from what you said that I want to unpack. And I think It's super important what you were talking about, the floor and how the federal government can essentially say, hey, look, because this is going to affect all of us, because you can take a autonomous vehicle and you can drive it from California and get a ride to Phoenix, Arizona, and you cross state borders. Now we got to put some kind of federal handbrake on this or at least some guardrails on it. So what I think is super important is what you were talking about with that floor and saying they're going to have to come in and at least set some kind of standard so that everyone knows what the playing field is and then whoever wants to take it above and beyond can. I think that's really important to look at. When we talk about these different areas and how AI is being used and the laws that are being enacted against AI or, or for AI within the U.S., it automatically makes me think about what's happening in the EU, as we mentioned before. And I'd love to get your opinion on how you feel what is happening right now with the EU laws for AI or the proposed regulation, because I had another fellow on here who made it very clear to me that this is not a law yet. This is not even close to it. It is proposed regulation and it needs some time before it's actually enacted. But just what you're seeing around the buzz of what the EU is doing, do you feel like that is going to have repercussions in the US like we saw with GDPR in California? It seems like they took it pretty seriously, but it, it took a while Do you feel like it, there's going to be that ripple effect that's going to take years before we do anything in the U.S. about it? Or is this something that will be more proactive? 
Well, so in the United States, we often talk about the California effect because California often, you know, it's, it's one of the hugest uh, economies or the largest economies within the United States itself. And so a lot of businesses, um, when they look at especially online related things, will end up having a standard that conforms to California because if California sets uh, uh, the highest standard, every other state will, <clears throat> you know, you'll adhere to all the other standards if it has the highest. In international law, we talk about the Brussels effect which is if the European Union does something because of the size of the market, a lot of other jurisdictions begin to follow those rules. So as we did see with GDPR, when, look, when GDPR was passed in 2016, it didn't come into force until May 25th, 2018. Um, there were a lot of us who were very skeptical of its impact and power. Um, one of the things that I'll say that, you know, a lot of other countries think the U.S. is very litigious and we have lots of instances where people in the U.S. sue for things that people in other jurisdictions wouldn't even imagine to sue for. Um, however, a lot of U.S. law historically has given individual consumers a private cause of action. So if I think my rights are being violated, I can go after the company itself. Now, often the European approach, um, and this is just you know my humble opinion, gets, gets embroiled in bureaucracy. So for instance, with the GDPR, if somebody thinks that their rights are being violated, they put a complaint to their local data protection authority who then interfaces with the selected data protection authority of whatever the company is, who then eventually decides to investigate. And they can often you know, impose very significant fines, but it's often a slow process. And so if it makes the larger companies more attractive um, as far as targets of investigation and regulation than the smaller companies, and depending on the area, small companies can do just as much damage as large companies. So when you look at the European approach to the AI system, there's a lot of, there are a lot rather of, you know, things that we saw in GDPR style, right? So a GDPR looked at binding corporate rules and standard contractual clauses and said, oh, so long as everybody agrees not to do bad things, we'll kind of trust that. Um, and when you look at the European approach, it often has, you know, certification schemes and it ends up putting a lot of regulatory burden on um, companies and the large companies can always weather that storm. You know, companies like Microsoft, Google, Apple, Facebook, and Amazon aren't really being hurt by GDPR. But some of the smaller companies have incurred tremendous costs with respect to compliance. So when it comes to the AI regulation, I think that even though the, well, the proposed AI regulation, I think that while the intent is good in a lot of ways, I think it is, can be something that ends up having a similar effect in which you have the smaller companies or the, the smaller um, businesses and the, the smaller groups of people who are trying to de develop and deploy these technologies who are going to have a tremendous regulatory burden. Um, that being said, you know, some of these smaller companies, as we've seen with some of the allegations against people like uh, firms like Cambridge Analytica, can access large amounts of data and do things that people find um, maybe might run against the common good. So it, it, it's sort of a double-edged sword to my mind with respect to how these things are going to play out. But I, I do think there are some good things in the regulation. Um, I, I do think that sort of this wild west of AI where people can use it however they want. We've seen instances where it's been used for good. We've seen heavily um, significant advances in um, designing medications to treat particular illnesses and figuring out how proteins fold and identifying um, fractures and other types of diagnostic criteria for hospitals that can always afford to have a radiologist on staff all the time. So I think that even though these things are doing a lot of good, we've also seen instances of where they're used for things that might not be, as I mentioned before, virtuous or in the public interest. 
And I think that as time goes on, we'll find out more instances where historically these things have been used in bad ways. So just to call out a few things in the regulation that I have concerns about, um, there is one provision where it says that data sets um, must be complete and free from error. And so when I hear that, I scratch my head and say, so if I'm making a facial recognition database, what's a complete data set? Is that every face of every person on the planet? And when it says it's free from error, so if I misspell my name because I'm not paying attention when I'm typing something on my phone, have I destroyed an entire data set because it has an error in it? So I think we'll need some clarification on a few of these things. And on occasion, we lawyers sort of like, we really like terms of art. So we have these totemic words with very special meanings. You know, like common carrier is, is one. Um, you know, uh, negligence per se, right? These are very specific terms we use in law that have very specific meanings. The world of property law is totally full with these things. And sometimes we might not know the industry term or we might think the industry term is inappropriate. So we come up with our own term of art. And so in some of the um, definitions in the proposed legislation, they sort of align more specifically with a more legalistic approach than an industry approach. And as we've seen, when people aren't speaking the same language Sometimes problems with compliance occur not because of any malfeasance, but because people think they understand things, but they actually don't. Let's change gears for a moment and jump into the work that you're doing with For Humanity. Can you tell me a bit about that? Because I've had Ryan on the show. I thought what he's doing is fascinating. We've had a ton of people for, from For Humanity on here. It seems like they're really paving the way when it comes to AI ethics and looking at it from this diverse field. So I'd like to know how you're involved in that and what you feel your role is. So the way that I got involved in For Humanity, and I had actually been aware of For Humanity and um, known Ryan for a little while, because I had been an adjunct professor of clinical law at Brooklyn Law School and a legal technology fellow. And there was some work that we had done where we crossed paths with Ryan and For Humanity. It wasn't until later during the outbreak of COVID that I was part of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology Media Lab's COVID-19 Privacy Working Group that was organized by Daza Greenwood out of the MIT Media Lab. And so one of the things that Ryan and I began discussing at that point was a lot of the privacy concerns around COVID-19 contact tracing, not only in manual contact tracing, but mobile device-based and automated contact tracing. And so I pointed out that there were a lot of concerns uh, with respect to relationships that could be revealed by the um, contact tracing exchanges. So for instance, as an attorney, if I'm meeting with a client that's protected, the lawyer-client privilege is sacrosanct under US law. So if I've represented them in litigation, people know that I'm the attorney of record for a particular person or at least represented them in a particular matter. But if I were a divorce attorney, and somebody started meeting with me regularly, uh, and that information was somehow leaked, that could be incredibly problematic for them. If I were a bankruptcy attorney and the CEO of a major company starts coming to my firm, which does corporate bankruptcy, that also has significant implications. So you could also see where automated contact tracing technology could be misused. You could have a law enforcement operative undercover um, use a false reporting of COVID-19 positive test to tag other people who were at a meeting that could have, um, you know, political views that are not necessarily popular with the majority. Um, you could have this used to identify sources of journalists 
you can have this used in oppressive regimes to map networks of dissent. And so we were very concerned with people willing to turn over information to government in a way that they weren't afforded a great many protections. So I'll digress for a moment and say in the United States, we have something called the third party doctrine, which essentially says any information you willingly share or knowingly share with a third party loses all constitutional expectations of privacy. Um, I recall that the question you'd ask me is about my role in for humanity, and here I am pontificating about American legal issues and the third-party doctrine. But suffice it to say, we were very concerned with any information shared being misused for a particular purpose. So that's how I got involved with for humanity, um, looking at these issues of privacy around electronic data sharing and other concerns. And when Ryan began to explain to me his idea of using independent audit in the same way that it works in the financial services industry to hold businesses accountable, it reminded me of issues that a lot of people have faced in privacy-focused litigation against big companies. So when I share my data with a social media company, they give me this contract of adhesion that we discussed earlier, where I'm offered a contract on a take-it-or-leave-it basis, and I can't bargain with them at all. And then I trust that they are sharing my data in a manner that they uh, is responsible and that they've outlined, and that they're not doing bad things with my data, or at least not doing things they say they won't do. But I have no way of verifying that. I can't just say because, um, you know, a gut instinct or otherwise, I think that Facebook is misusing my data and file a lawsuit. And let's just say that I did. Let's say that I did go to court and was able to file this claim and sort of articulate how specifically I think Facebook might be violating my, my privacy. I can't prove harm. If I can't prove any damage by them misusing or missharing my data, I can't get any relief from the court. So I was... It struck me when Ryan was explaining this, like, oh my God, the idea of independent audit for privacy would be spectacular. If you had a third party come in and look at how some of these companies are collecting, storing, and sharing the data in a way that's verifiable, I would need to go on a fishing expedition with one of these companies because I suspected that they were misusing my data. Were they misusing my data, the auditor would find it. And if they were, it would make it much easier for me and other people like me to bring a claim against them. So I got involved with For Humanity and the work that it was doing. My background in U.S. federal legislative policy and my knowledge of the law as a U.S. lawyer um, had me looking at some of the legal issues involved. Working at a university in the U.K., I do have some experience with international law issues, U.K. issues, and EU law issues. So I was sort of marrying those kinds of things. And as For Humanity grew, there was a recognition that For Humanity also needed to have its own legal representation. So I'm also general counsel of For Humanity. Now, we're not necessarily large enough, and because we're all volunteer, we don't really have employees. So we haven't had any HR issues to deal with or any of the types of things that in-house counsels typically deal with. But we do have intellectual property. Uh, we do have companies that, um, and organizations and governments that want to work with us. We do need legal agreements in place. So uh, I wear kind of two hats at For Humanity. One is as a person with an expertise in privacy and some experience in legal issues in the U.S., U.K., and E.U., but the other as general counsel, sort of keeping us on the straight and narrow with respect to U.S. law. Okay, let's. I can't let you say all of that and not ask you to dive in deeper to that first part of how privacy can be abused with the contact tracing. Well, not even with the contact tracing, but just when that special data is in the wrong hands. And I know that I was very disturbed when I saw this incredible short film. I'm not sure if you've seen it. It's We Know What You Did This uh, Quarantine. 
So we'll link to it in the show notes and I'll send it to you after this because basically it breaks down that whole scene of someone being called into an office and they're being interrogated, not by the police, but by someone with a lot of data on what this woman did during her quarantine and who she met with and what she Googled and every single piece, what she bought on Amazon, every piece of her data was exposed to her. And they were trying to prove effectively that she was the one that brought COVID to their neighborhood. And then there was an outbreak for that. And they did it by saying how she met with an ex-lover and they couldn't prove that she had, uh, had like had sex with this ex-lover, but they said, well, you took a two-hour shower afterwards after you came home from meeting with them. And then you Googled how to forgive or uh, what. And it's like they're going through all of this and trying to make these, all of these conclusions. And so what you're saying really just reminds me of that so much because it's like with all of this data, we could effectively draw any conclusions that we want. And at the end of this short film, the most amazing part is that the woman comes clean and she says, and so there's a spoiler alert, just so if you don't want me to tell you the end, I don't, I, it's, I'll leave it for you. We'll just leave it. But the end is a nice twist and it makes it all worth it. And it makes you realize how, wrong we are to go about trying to make conclusions on the limited data that we have. Although we think we know everything by saying, oh, what you bought, where you were, what you went on a run, and you, your heart rate was at this uh, amount from your Apple Watch or whatever it is, we don't know the full story. And so mm. I think that your foray and your looking at this and the privacy part of this is really interesting. And I'd love to zoom into that real fast and just talk about, A, the contact tracing systems, how we can create these without any issues and there isn't a huge uproar. I mean, there was a bit of uproar, but it seemed like not as much as there should have been. And I know I've talked to other people who have called out how it doesn't work how it's just ineffective and we're still thinking and trying to act like it does work. And so let's just zoom into that and please give me more of your thoughts. Well, um, I'll begin by saying that we are very, we as human beings are very bad when it comes to judging risk. And we make a lot of bad decisions because we underestimate or overestimate risk in certain contexts. Mm. When it comes to issues of privacy and civil liberties more broadly, we often see them violated in times of public crisis. Looking at the laws passed in the United States after September 11th, 2001, looking at the amount to which surveillance was tolerated and encouraged, we can see how in the future localized national or global crises are going to convince more and more and more people that certain cherished rights like privacy and individual autonomy might not be as important to them if faced with um, an urgent need, public expedience in the threat of some kind of crisis. So, I'll say that as we're having this conversation, we are um, about 
should we say, what, 15 months into the recognition of a global pandemic, we have seen shutdowns globally on a massive scale. We see a lot of people unemployed. We see a lot of businesses closed. And we have people on both sides of the policy argument offensively wielding science, claiming that they're on the side of virtue and that they are on the side of science. I think mm -hmm. decades from now, we'll still be debating whether or not governments made the right decisions and when these decisions were made. So going back to this idea of contact tracing and whether or not it works or whether or not it doesn't, I do, I'm not a scientist, right? I'm not a data scientist. I'm not a doctor. I don't know enough to know about how effective these systems are. I know that we haven't had long enough of using these kinds of systems and haven't shown a success rate using these systems that makes me definitively say, I think we should do this or I think we shouldn't do this. And there are different approaches to automated contact tracing solutions, but each of them has their own risks. You know, um, in basic terms, there are some approaches that <clears throat> um, use Bluetooth low energy so that when one device comes in close contact with another, tokens are exchanged. Some systems have these tokens reconciled on the devices themselves so that all the computing and matching is done locally so that if somebody reports a positive COVID test, an anonymous system will enable you to determine whether or not you've come into contact and you'll be alerted, but some government authority won't be alerted because the matching isn't done centrally. In other instances, every interaction you have is reported to a centralized server and the matching is done on that score. There are varying ways of technological approaches that you can use to ensure whether or not these can remain private or how private these things are. But in broad strokes, I think there's a lot of risk of installing in municipal, um, state, local, or national authorities information about the people with whom you're coming into contact. Now, sometimes these systems would use the exchange of a unique identifier in one contact. Sometimes they would do it periodically so you could tell the duration of time because the viral load or the amount of exposure could vary with time. So in, in other words, it's essentially allowing a potential government authority to figure out where we are over a period of a day and everybody with whom we've come into contact and spend time. Now, it might be you're sitting next to somebody on a bus it could be you're meeting with them in private. Now, they also, you can begin to tell more information about somebody and where they are. Based, so if I'm on a public bus, I'm exchanging tokens with loads and loads and loads of people. If I'm in the middle of nowhere in a private cabin, I'm only exchanging tokens with one person. Mm -hmm. So there are all kinds of things that we could find out about with respect to people's behaviors and people's habits. As I mentioned before, mapping networks of dissent um, is something that can be done here, seeing the kinds of doctors people are going to. You could even have a, a businesses where somebody reports a false positive and hangs around the business all day to discredit one of their rivals or to affect mm -hmm. um, how these businesses are operating. So there's all sorts of ways that the system can be abused. And until up and until we're able to, I think, with a high degree of fidelity, determine the um, value that these systems have for public health and public safety, I'm very skeptical of their use in these contexts. And just to be clear, some of this that you're talking about, I mean, if someone wanted to do some nefarious actions, they wouldn't necessarily need to have the app. I realize as you're speaking, if someone wanted to report a false positive and then go and hang out and they ask, where have you been? Well, I've been at this place A, which is, it just so happens to be my competitor's office and they have to shut down. Uh, so there's that. 
there's just so much to think about when we look at that. And the main thing that I'm wondering about, which popped up in one of the early seasons when I was talking to Merve, and she spoke about how when we hand over these powers or when these powers are taken from us, it, the government or the powers that be have a really hard time giving them back. And mm -hmm. that is the thing that I think I fear the most is that as we lose, as our, our public rights are eroded away slowly or however they may, may be, like I think back to 9-11, it hasn't gotten more relaxed since we have had 9-11 and then we had the big changes within how we fly and the TSA and all of that. It stayed the same. And so seems to me like the fear, at least from my eyes, is that this will be, our civil liberties will be taken away and then they're not going to be given back when we deem that there is no more threat from a virus. I think that the track record of government tells us that it's likely to be the case. The U.S. Department of Agriculture, for instance, was founded during the Civil War and partly was designed to ensure that Union soldiers had enough grain still around. I mean, government doesn't like to give away power, doesn't like to cede authority. In fact, the only instance that comes to my mind in which you have had an executive branch agency in the United States ask Congress to limit its powers was the U.S. Department of State in the early to mid-1970s when it urged Congress to pass the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act of 1976 to prevent the State Department from needing to get involved when lawsuits were brought against foreign countries. Um, other than that, nothing comes to mind of when government has actually asked for its powers to be curtailed. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at uh, Merve's observation around government not wanting to give up power, I think it's a very salient observation. Looking at the way that law operates, once something is enshrined in precedent, it's very difficult to get it removed. So you may recall the instance um, where uh, Apple computing, uh, Apple computers and F the FBI were at odds over yeah. an iPhone 5C that yeah. was sort of in possession of Saeed Farouk, who's the um, shooter in San Bernardino, California. Now, um, Farouk worked for the Department of Public Health for the county of San Bernardino, right? It was his work phone. So the government owned the phone the FBI found the phone in his car. The government of California, San Bernardino, said, yes, we are the owners of the device and we authorize access. But the passcode prevented them from accessing the device. So those of you, uh, we can link to it in the show notes, and there's a lot of interesting stuff around this. The Judge Pym issued a very interesting suggested order that was filed by the Department of Justice on behalf of the FBI, which was a very sophisticated means by which the FBI was suggesting Apple could facilitate entry to the device. And the legal question here was the extent to which the court could compel Apple, who was the third party in this investigation, to do something to help with the investigation. The law here was a law called the All Writs Act, which was passed as part of the Judiciary Act of 1789. At that time, there were not many federal laws. There were no federal law enforcement officers. 
And there were questions as to the extent to which the courts could compel people to do things. So the law essentially says the courts can issue any and all writs necessary or appropriate to aid within their respective jurisdictions. Now, what this means is the courts couldn't use this to, in fact, um, um, take over a case or exert influence on a case. But once the case was before the court, the court nearly had limitless power to ensure that justice was served. And so um, what this meant was that in areas where the law had spoken, the court couldn't overrule that by saying, oh, we're issuing this writ to overturn this law. Or in areas where the law had said something was prohibited, the court couldn't say, oh, yes, we're doing this. But in areas where the law hadn't really caught up or that hadn't given a specific term to it or didn't conflict with constitutional provisions, the courts could sort of do whatever they needed. So you think about, let's say that they thought there was a murder on the top of a high mountain. You know, could they take someone who was an alpinist or a mountaineer and say, you must go to recover this evidence for us because a storm's coming in and we could lose it? Or if a ship sank, could they get uh, salvage divers to go recover it because they think investigation is mm. on it? And the courts have roundly held in certain circumstances that if there is a, an undue burden or increased risk, um, maybe that that's too high a burden. And so one of the presidential cases is a 1977 U.S. Supreme Court case called United States versus New York Telephone, in which a telephone company refused to put what's called a pen register or a dial number recorder onto a telephone of somebody who's suspectedly involved in gambling or whatever it was. And the court at that time found that, that the New York Telephone Company had this technology and they used it all the time. I mean, people knew that they used it because you needed to dial numbers and maintain tolling records so that you could bill people for mm -hmm. long distance and those sorts of things. So the court at that time said, well, um, you, can, you can be compelled to do something um, and, and compensated for your time. And so um, there was a sort of undue burden standard that came into play with respect to how we would determine whether or not it was appropriate. But the Supreme Court didn't really give us a test. So why am I bringing all this up with respect to government power? Well, when we look at the iPhone issue, the concern was that if the government issued an order, the court issued an order saying, yes, Apple, you can be compelled to do all of these things they want. You can be compelled to make a custom version of the operating system that can help them you know, remove the delay between failed password attempts that will prevent the device from auto erasing and that you can have remote uh, password attempts from Quantico sent to brute force the thing. Then all of a sudden that would be enshrined in precedent and the government could require anybody to do it all the time. Now, what ended up happening was the FBI withdrew the request and supposedly the Israeli firm Celebrate facilitated entry to the device. But in broad strokes, what we've seen is that when the court issues an order, when the government gets away with something, whether it's from a regulatory perspective or a law enforcement perspective or any other thing, um, the government is really reluctant to uh, do anything that curtails that. So when it comes to the idea of contact tracing, if we download these devices and if they're able to be used in this particular Way. I mean, if we download not these devices, but these applications, and if we give them these fast permissions, and if governments are accustomed to collecting all this information from us, you might have some jurisdiction to say, actually, we really like this idea. Because if there is a crime, we can identify the suspects. If there is another public outbreak, we don't need to get everybody to download it again. You had some places where they were saying, if you come to our jurisdiction, you must download this application. So a lot of this stuff can be very, very concerning if we don't have guardrails on it, if we don't have suppression remedies, if we don't have rules and orders that say, no, this can be used yeah, this can be used in this way, but not in this way. So a lot of this stuff can be very, very concerning if we think of the worst case scenario, which is lawyers we're apt to do. Yeah, and now maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong. Is it illegal for the government to go into these phones or have they changed that law? Um, so um, uh, the the... The complicated answer is, is it depends. So there was no order 
actually issued when it came to the iPhone matter. Uh, the request was withdrawn, so we don't have any precedent around the government compelling companies to facilitate entry to the devices. Um, interestingly, <clears throat> and I think the case law, there have been some recent developments on this. Um, in the United States, our Fifth Amendment prevents people from saying things that will incriminate themselves, or at least gives them the option not to, uh, okay. forced to testify. And when it comes to electronic devices and other things, passwords and passcodes in some places are considered testimonial. So while I cannot be compelled in some jurisdictions to enter my passcode into my mobile device, I can be compelled to put my thumb on it. Uh. So one of the reasons why you'll notice in your smartphones most often, if you reset the device, they require you enter your passcode before you can use your fingerprint to unlock it. That was at the suggestion of a lot of really sharp civil liberties-focused people in Washington to these companies as a way of getting around people being compelled to enter their passcode. So some of these stories are true, some of these are apocryphal, but in broad strokes, if you think about it, if you can be compelled to enter a passcode, if you get arrested, turn off your phone, and then they'll need a court order um, somehow to try to get you to do it, and likely the court won't issue the order that would compel you to enter your passcode because it's considered testimonial. Wow, Okay. Okay. Well, there have been some presidential U.S. Supreme Court cases regarding this type of issue and some debates as to whether or not this could extend to cloud storage. So as I mentioned before, this third-party doctrine um, came up in a U.S. case called U.S. v. Miller involving bank deposits. Uh, it's a 1979 case called Smith v. Maryland, which involved pen register or trial on dialed number recorders to identify a suspect. Um, and that was the third-party doctrine. Information, excuse me, information you willingly share with a third party loses this constitutional expectation of privacy. So when it comes to the massive NSA metadata program revealed by um, the documents taken by Edward Snowden given to people like Glenn Greenwald and Laura Poitras, um, that metadata idea fits within the third-party doctrine context where the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court essentially said, this tangible things provision in Section 215 of the USA Patriot Act, which said the government can demand um, tangible things, something like that, related to an ongoing investigation, mm -hmm. um, could apply to all phone records. And that this wasn't in conflict with the third-party doctrine because we could collect everything but the content of the calls. Mm -hmm. So when we go back to this idea of machine learning and artificial intelligence and the risks to privacy, the ability of this technology to analyze large amounts of data scales up these really great risks. So if you're just, if I'm a suspect and you're just looking at my call records, you know, is that an invasion of my privacy? Well, not according to the Supreme Court under this third party doctrine. But if you end up looking at the call records for me and everybody I call and everybody that they call and everybody that they call, these are the infamous hops that we heard about, the three hops with respect yeah. to the NSA metadata program you begin to map these huge networks of people who might have done nothing wrong, but you know, been called by somebody who called somebody who called somebody who called somebody who was suspected of being involved in terrorism. So imagine if there was somebody who's suspected of being a terrorist who um, you know, calls uh, for pizza delivery. And then yeah. the pizza delivery driver in New York City calls to say that they're at the front door. Well, all of a sudden, everybody with whom this pizza delivery driver has ever been in contact is part of this map of um, you know, this link analysis that they use to try to determine these sorts of things. So uh, it seems to me that when it comes to the amount of data that we generate and the ability for these systems to analyze it, there are a lot of risks of false positives for us being caught in these really wide nets. So tell me more about this privacy audit that you were speaking of earlier. Is that project underway? And is there a way to go about getting a privacy audit? 
Right. So uh, For Humanity, as you, um, for those unfamiliar with For Humanity, is a nonprofit organization that is looking to develop standards for audits around a range of technologies of AIs and autonomous systems. And so when we talk about the concept of audit, what this means is coming up with an objective set of criteria through a process that is crowdsourced and transparent that will allow companies and individuals to um, uh, undergo a third-party audit where somebody else comes in, analyzes what the business practices are, and sees whether or not they conform to or adhere to the terms contained within the audit. So it's basically a way of having somebody from the outside come in and verify whether or not you're following a set of predetermined rules or ground rules set up by somebody who's independent. One of the interesting things about ethics is that it's often some sort of codification of a normative moral approach within a given society. So I, as a lawyer, I'm governed by the American Bar Association Rules of Professional Conduct, and there's a standards body. If I run afoul of these ethical obligations, people can file a bar complaint against me. I could be professionally sanctioned. I could even lose my law license. Whereas if you're somebody who, uh, a company, for instance, that comes up with its own ethical standards, I've never heard of a company coming up with its own ethical standards and then not passing, you know, some kind of ethical test with respect to their own standards. It's like, like I would never let my point. students grade their homework, right? Right. You know, so I don't know why a lot of these companies feel that they, and it's so funny to me when people call them, uh, there's a lot of people who uh, um, seem to think that they can kind of make up their own ethics standards without consultation with a third party. And um, so one of the things that For Humanity is doing is coming up with these ethics standards. And For Humanity has no financial interest in these companies. They have no professional relationship with these companies. And so when you look at it, you have a privacy audit. Um, what these are designed to do is try to determine what the best practices are with respect to privacy, adhering to local laws to the extent possible. So we would never come up with our own normative approach to privacy and say, we as for humanity think privacy means X, Y, and Z or X, Y, and Z for those of you in the UK. Um, what we would do is look at what a law would be like the, the regulation, the GDPR, for instance. And we came up with criteria looking as a model as to what the requirements were under GDPR. So that if a company, for instance, wants to have a GDPR audit, Ideally, you would have some kind of standards body or government organization within the jurisdiction approve of it. So they could say, um, well, gosh, instead of us investigating you to see if you're GDPR compliant, you bring in a third party. And so long as you pass this audit, you kind of get our stamp of approval because you're, uh, the auditor is on the line and they are liable if they misrepresent your compliance. So in the United States, we have things like underwriters laboratory, um, you know, we have accounting firms that certify whether or not a company adheres to the generally accepted accounting practices and whether their books reflect what the standards are. And so a privacy audit would be a similar thing. People, a third party, would come into a company. They would look at everything that touches and concerns privacy with respect to the scope of defined within the audit. And at the end, put out a certificate, hopefully a certificate of compliance that says uh, that the company does in fact adhere to it. Now, gosh, if a company doesn't um, pass the audit, that could be incredibly embarrassing for them in a lot of ways and could end up exposing them to regulatory liability. So it would be very important for these companies to work with a separate, not the person auditor, the firm auditing them, yeah. but a separate provider who can help them prepare for the audit. Because again, we don't want anybody creating their own homework. Yeah, that is fascinating. And I think it is so important to do 
yet I don't see it happening a lot. I don't know about you. Is there much demand for that? Um, so it's a challenge in that most companies wouldn't willingly undergo something like this that could expose them to tremendous risk. Yeah, when especially I say risk, if they don't I mean, have to. Right, especially, exactly, especially if they don't have to. So if you, um, as you begin to see greater enforcement, if there is some sort of imprimatur of government that says passing this audit, we will consider de facto compliance with a law until we hear otherwise, that would give tremendous power to it. If there's a critical mass um, of companies that feel that this is a good sign and that, that consumers care about this sort of thing, from a normative perspective, they would want to do it. You look at certain certification marks like, um, uh, you, know, uh, you know, certified organic or the, 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 F the Forest Stewardship Council when it comes to paper goods. Or what's the one with the frog? Rainforest? Yeah. Something or other? Fair trade? Or, yeah, yeah, the, fair, yeah, fair, fair trade certified. Yeah, whatever, whatever these things are. You know, for a lot of companies, they're not required to do that. But for a certain consumer base, it's important that they adhere to a type of standard with respect to either the use of renewable energy or, uh, you know, a, a responsible fair trade process. And so the way that these types of audits are going to catch on is either, to my mind, if there's a regulatory requirement to undergoing this process, or if the users of these services, the consumers of these services say, well, wait a minute, I want more transparency. If there's a choice between similar email services, for instance, and I find out that one has passed some heavy duty uh, privacy type audit or other type of AI focused compliance audit and passed, and I can look at the audit criteria and I can see that the process was transparent and I can see that you know, almost 400 global experts in various fields fed into these criteria, I'm going to have a much higher degree of confidence in the accountability, transparency, and openness of that organization and their practices than one, uh, an organization or company that, that doesn't open their books in that way. In the same way that a lot of folks feel more confident in open source software than in closed stuff software. Um, I think that we'll, as there's more of a recognition of perhaps the, the need for these types of audits and the need for this type of external accountability, hopefully consumers will realize the value in working with organizations that do adhere to these terms or do undergo these audits. So the way that I see it right now within the AI ethics sphere, and I think maybe the biggest barrier for us as a AI ethics community to have one of those certified organic stamps is that everyone's trying to make their own certified stamp and it ends up diluting the pool. How do you think that can be avoided so that we can all essentially vote for one or say this is the one that we want and we're all going to stand behind it and we recognize that it is the most effective and most useful framework that we can be using. No, I, th I think it's a great challenge in the community. I think that in broad strokes, uh, it's difficult to come up with a solution that covers a wide enough range of issues, but is tailored enough to either be jurisdictionally or industry specific. And so just to unpack those terms, um, you know, the, the type, the, 
there's a, a way to mitigate downside risk that is different across different sectors. And so one of the problems with AI, and this is one of the things that I tell a lot of the law firms that are stakeholders in the Legal Innovation Center at Ulster University, is when they have a vendor that comes in and tries to sell them a product that uses AI, I always tell them, well, have the vendor explain the product without using the phrase AI. And sometimes the vendors uh, are, are, have a lot of, struggle a lot to describe what the technology does without using the phrase AI or machine learning or algorithm. And so when it comes to the idea of ethics more broadly, I think that ethics can be very challenging in a lot of ways because it's often an expression of normative moral values in a particular place. So when you look at the field of law, the ethical standards for lawyers are different than the ethical standards for doctors. Right? The ethical standards for me as a lawyer in the United States are slightly different than the ethical standards for a lawyer in the United Kingdom. Um, mm. And so one of the problems I think that the, with the industry struggles with is that a lot of the ethical approaches are either so specific that you can't translate them into other industries, other companies, or other sectors, or other times they're so broad as to not have any particular value or meaning with respect to sort of an apples-to-apples -apples comparison. So one of the reasons I think that the for humanity approach is so enticing is that the number of experts across a wide range of fields feeding into it means that it's the most comprehensive um, kind of approach that we can do until we have more people feeding in and can make it more comprehensive. So I think that we'll see that it is a living sort of document, as it were, that, that each audit is going to be something that undergoes evolution as the industry evolves. And do you and feel so, like... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. And do you feel like we're going to get to a place where we need very specific pieces of this? Like the, it's going to branch out so it can cover all of the different use cases and edge cases that you're talking about? Like you're saying... With a doctor, it's a different use case, especially if you're bringing AI into it and the ethics that are involved in that, it's going to be much different. And effectively, that's what the EU regulation was trying to do with their different standards or this is high, uh, high stakes and medium stakes. But then I think about, like you were saying, geographic location is another factor involved in that. And so I almost like see it like maybe there's one overarching standard or ethics that you can buy into, but then depending on where you go, there's like a decision tree that you can go down and you can say, well, am I in, am I in the US? Am I which state? Okay, I'm in this state and I'm in this field and I'm using reinforcement learning. Okay, here's a body of ethics that I should go after. Is that how effectively you're trying to make it play out? Oh gosh, well, I, I can't speak... Um for, for humanity uh, on this score, right? Because I know that there's a lot of different ideas and we take this consensus approach drawing from a wide range of experts. So as a lawyer, I have to say, you know, this, this is only my opinion, not that of the organization. And reinforcement learning, uh, let's, just, let's just avoid reinforcement learning for now because that stuff is wild. That stuff is very, very cool, but very, very wild. Um, but no, I mean, uh, you know, to my mind, it seems that there's going to be some sort of overall... Um, ethical framework that applies to the technology no matter what the industry is. And then perhaps there might be industry-specific sub-criteria that, that can apply. So, for instance, if you are using um, 
machine learning in a context that has nothing to do with, with humans, right? Nothing to do with sensitive personal information, biometric information. I mean, uh, you know, not my field, but let's just say I'm using machine learning to um, um, track fish in the Atlantic Ocean mm-hmm. for whatever reason. And, and it's solely anonymized and, and disaggregated uh, for purposes of research. You know, nothing to do with sharing this with fisheries or things that could affect international law. Um, you know, the, the standards that are applied in that context might not need to be as rigorous um, as they would be if I were using the same type, the same family of machine learning technology to um, identify individual children in a public school system. Hmm. Right. So I think that we might move to uh, parts where different um, application specific criteria are designed depending on what the areas are. So a great example would be um, you know, this idea of the um, what's reasonably foreseeable under the proposed European regulation, right? Reasonable, reasonably foreseeable misuse. I was on a 20 minute, I spent about 20 minutes rather on a call explaining what reasonably foreseeable meant in a U.S. legal context, right? And so when you look at what is reasonably foreseeable, maybe what ends up happening is we need to create some sort of database where we look at different types of machine learning technology and how that could be reasonably foreseeable. So if I were using a machine learning technology that we're trying to track an endangered population that use facial recognition characteristics to identify individual bison, you know, um, or, 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 or impala or, you know, whatever, some kind of large animal, um, you know, I could reasonably foresee that somebody would take that source code and maybe tweak it to do facial recognition of people. Mm-hmm. Right. So all of a sudden that becomes high risk. That's foreseeable misuse because I have foreseen it. Um, and so if I um, know that that's happened in the past, that's reasonably foreseeable. But if somebody were to take that same technology, um, I can't even think of a way, you know, and, and use it to try to, uh, you know, uh, unique identification of people's hands or something. You know, is that foreseeable? Well, now that I've articulated it, sure, we can say that's foreseeable, right? But some kind of other use of that that I think a bunch of smart people sitting in a room throwing spaghetti at the wall um, won't think of might not be reasonably foreseeable. Um, so, you know, there's there's a wide range of concerns that that can come up with how these technologies can be used and misused. And I've sort of lost I've lost the thread there. I was just I haven't had lunch and I'm thinking about spaghetti. <laughs> throwing it against the wall. Uh, Well, I'm going to let you go in just a minute, but I think that what you were talking about before with how the U.S. government creates a floor, it seems to me like that is a good parallel to what the for humanity ethics, the overarching ethics would be. It would be the floor, and then as you go into different areas, you can get more and more specific where it can be more and more regulated or not regulated. I know for humanity isn't regulating per se, but it can get more detailed on what it asks for. And so I think that's fascinating. And I'm definitely going to talk to Ryan about that more because now you piqued my interest on that. And I've got a million questions that I want to ask him uh, for that. So I've got one last question for you though, Mark. This has been fascinating to chat with you. I really appreciate you coming on here and giving me basically the Cliff Notes version of 
all of the legal system since when did, I think you quoted something back in 1756, even when it comes to AI and privacy and anything that I need to know for the US legal system, I feel very confident to be able to have a conversation around a dinner table about it now. And I grew up with a lot of lawyers in the family. So that's saying something. Now, last question for you. Are you a robot? Um, I don't think so, but everybody else might be. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thanks again, Mark. This has been fascinating. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, hopefully I can come back sometime. For sure. Definitely. Definitely.